Today is definitely a unique day in the life of our church. It's unique enough that I actually broke out a suit this morning. Um, my son, when he saw it on me, said, Dad, you look like Iron Man. I'm like, hey, thanks, pal. You know how to puff your dad up. All right. Give you a couple more dollars that, from the tooth fairy. Uh, well, I'm excited to see how the Holy Spirit's going to lead us as a church family this morning. And uh, given the uniqueness of the service and uh, what today is all uh, about, I, you know, understand we spent a lot of extra time in prayer just seeking the Lord. Lord, what's the message from your word that our church needs this morning? And, I mean, technically speaking, this is my candidacy sermon. Uh, but my heartbeat is that uh, today wouldn't in any way be about me, even though uh, a little bit later in the service you're going to be voting on whether or not I'm the next lead pastor. My heartbeat today is that, like every Sunday, is about Jesus and the glory of God. Uh, so as I was praying uh, about the message this morning, uh, I believe the Lord led me uh, to take a break from the book of Philippians and spend this morning in Colossians chapter 1. We're going to look specifically at verse number 18. I'd encourage you to turn in your Bibles there. Colossians chapter number 1. Uh, in Colossians chapter number 1, we find a hymn that's very similar to the one that we just worked through in Philippians chapter number 2, verses 5 through 11, that points us to the centrality of Christ. Uh, but what's unique about this hymn in Colossians chapter 1 is right in the middle of this hymn, there's this fantastic reminder for any church, uh, but specifically for us in our situation this morning. In verse 18, it says, he is also, he, Jesus, is also the head of the body, the church. He is the first, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. And I just want to say, regardless of how the Lord leads us today, regardless of how the vote goes, verse 18 is still our greatest reality. And so as we seek the will of God and as we ask the Holy Spirit to lead us this morning, let's turn our attention to our ultimate leader, our ultimate shepherd, Jesus Christ. And this morning, as we turn our attention to him, we're going to be looking at a, a, a lot of scripture. I'm going to read some lengthier portions of scripture this morning. Uh, but the focus, as it always needs to be, is on Jesus. So I'm going to read all of Colossians chapter number 1 this morning, as we've been doing to give us the context for verse number 18. Then we will pray and jump into this morning's message. Colossians chapter 1, verse number 1. The Bible says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by God's will, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints in Christ at Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You have already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard it and came to truly appreciate God's grace. You learn this from Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has told us about your love in the Spirit. Verse number 9, for this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance 
and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled, to, reconciled you by his physical body through his death. Why? To present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted, shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's affliction for his body, that is the church. I have become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I pray that you would anoint the preaching of your word this morning. I pray that your word would be good news to the broken. I pray that your word would bring conviction to those who need to be convicted. Lord, but above all, I pray that you would anoint your word and that we would lift our eyes to you and that we would see you high and lifted up and that Jesus would be exalted in our presence this morning. And Lord, as we gather here today, we are seeking your spirit's leading. But Lord, we would be remiss not to pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering for gathering. Lord, I think of the 17 missionaries that have been kidnapped in Haiti. Lord, we pray for them. We pray for their rescue. We pray for their deliverance. Lord, but I pray that you would be exalted in their eyes, even as they are being persecuted for their faith. Lord, be with us this morning. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, our first thought this morning um, from verse 18 comes from the very first part of that verse. And our first thought is, Jesus is the head. The first part of verse 18 says, he is also the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the head. The scripture tells us that at a moment a person becomes a believer in Christ, they become a part of the body of Christ. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. The Bible says, for just as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many, are one body, so also is Christ. For we are all baptized by one spirit 
into one body. Whether Jews or Greek, whether slaves or free, he says it doesn't matter your background, it doesn't matter where you come from. The moment you place your faith in Jesus and are baptized by the Spirit, we are all put into one body. And we're all given one spirit to drink. Romans 12, uh, 5 says, In the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Now, oftentimes we'll talk about how the church is the body of Christ, but what does that mean? Does that mean we're all supposed to get in a big shape like a body? And kind of, no, what it means is that we are to be a representation of Jesus on earth. Just like Jesus was a representation of God on earth as he walked this earth, that is what the church is supposed to be now that Jesus is back up in heaven. The church being the body of Christ means we are to be his representation on earth. That means the way we interact with people is to represent Jesus. The way we work is to represent Jesus. The way we talk, the way we navigate difficulties. Every part of our life is to be a reflection of Jesus. I often say that we should work at our job like Jesus would work at our job. We should love our families the way Jesus would love our families. As a church body, we exist to reflect Jesus. This is what it means to glorify God. Sometimes we think about glorifying God and we make it confusing and, and ethereal and we keep it so high when really it just means that we are displaying the beauty of what it means to be a Jesus follower. To glorify God with our lives means we are a reflection of Jesus. When people look at the Fresno church, they see Jesus in Fresno. Pastor Mark Dever said the church is God's vehicle for displaying his glory to his creation. Now, this only works if Jesus is in his rightful place as our head. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul is showing us how our marriage is to be a representation of Jesus. And he says in Ephesians 5, 23, the second half of the verse, Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body because Jesus is our savior. He is our head. Because he gave his life for us, we now have his in righteousness imputed to us, which allows us to live as his representatives. It can be scary thinking, oh man, we got to be a representation of Jesus, that's hard. But because Jesus is our Savior, he has given us his righteousness, he has given us his strength, like we read at the end of Colossians chapter number 1. We don't have to do this in our own strength. Because Jesus is our Savior, he has given us his righteousness and the ability to glorify him as his representatives on earth. The fact that he is our Savior is what enables us to live as his body. He has purchased us with his own blood. We no longer exist for ourselves. We exist for Jesus, which glorifies God. And as we've been seeing throughout the book of Philippians, this is the key to authentic joy. Christ is the head of the church. And as members, we are totally dependent on him. I mean, your physical body wouldn't last long without its head. It should be the same way with the church. We cannot function as his representatives on earth without living in total dependence on Jesus, without completely submitting to him. Just like your head or your mind controls the rest of your body, Jesus is to be the one that controls the church. That means Jesus sets the direction. Jesus sets the vision. He is our leader. He's the one we follow. He is our chief shepherd. Yes, God has ordained under shepherds or elders to help feed his body and to point us back to Jesus, but we are not the head. Jesus is the head. Verse 18 unpacks this further when it says, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And so the middle part of this verse, we see, yes, Jesus is the head, but we also see Jesus is our ruler. Jesus is the ruler. Now, last week, we unpacked what the Bible means when it calls Jesus the begotten son of God or the firstborn uh, from the dead. Uh, firstborn does not mean that Jesus was the first and created being. 
Verse 18 tells us that Jesus was from the beginning. That means he has always existed. Firstborn of the dead doesn't mean that he was the first person to be raised back to life. I mean, there's plenty of stories throughout Scripture where people were raised back to life before Jesus. Firstborn is another way of saying first or greatest in rank. This is Paul saying Jesus is the greatest person to ever have been raised from the dead. Jesus is the greatest. All other resurrections are made possible by his resurrection. Jesus is the first person to receive a glorified body after being raised from the dead. And our entire faith hinges on this reality. Paul unpacks this in 1 Corinthians 15. I'd encourage you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to read verses 12 through 28. It's a lengthier portion of Scripture, but I love how uh, how Paul unpacks how the resurrection is essential and is the bedrock of our faith. In 1 Corinthians 15, 12, he says, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how could some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? Paul is confronting false teaching in the, uh, the church at Corinth. He says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain. And so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God. Because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Those, then, who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. He's like unpacking. If the resurrection isn't real, we've got zilch hope. Like we have nothing to hang our hat on. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. But as it is, I love that. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For There's a similar phrase, firstborn among the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also came through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. Afterwards at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and all power, for he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. For God has put everything under his feet. We unpacked that last week. Now when it says everything is put under him, it's obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. When everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him so that God may be all in all. Because Christ has been raised from the dead and God is putting everything under Jesus' feet, we have the most sure hope. This is what we mean when we say Jesus is our ruler. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father, executing the will of God, bringing all things under to his subjection. This is why we have hope, church. It's easy to think about Jesus being our ruler and be filled with dread, right? I mean, if you grew up in a legalistic environment, I get this. You hear Jesus is your ruler and you instantly fear, oh, I got to do everything just right. But that's a misconception. Jesus being our ruler is our hope. The fact that Jesus is our ruler, we know. Jesus is my ruler. He has victory over sin, and he is in me. His spirit is in me, so I have victory over sin. I have the power to live a righteous and holy life that glorifies God. As we just read, 
Jesus being our ruler because he was raised from the dead is the bedrock of our faith. He is the reason we have joy. Because Jesus is bringing everything into subjection under his feet. You can have obstinate joy when your circumstances tell you otherwise. You can look at your circumstances and say, no, I'm going to choose an attitude of joy today because Jesus is my ruler. And he is more powerful than these circumstances. He's the reason we're saved from our sin. Like Paul said, if Jesus hasn't raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father and been our ruler, we're still dead in our sins. We have got no hope. But because Jesus has been raised from the dead, because Jesus is our ruler, that's why we can be saved from our sins. Because Jesus is our ruler, that's what enables us to walk in holiness and experience victory over sin. Jesus is our ruler. So submission to Jesus as our rightful ruler is our pathway to joy. It's our pathway to life. Like we saw last week, Psalm 1611, in his presence there's pleasure forevermore. At his right hand there's abundant joy. Submission to Jesus should not be something we dread, but something that we gladly embrace. Because that's our only hope in life and death. Because Jesus is the ruler, the firstborn from the dead. He is the head of the body. So verse 18 tells us Jesus is the head. We're dependent on him. Jesus is our ruler. That means we gladly submit to him. And lastly, at the end of verse 18, we see Jesus is our priority. Jesus is the priority. So that he might come to have first place or preeminence in everything. Now, Jesus having priority in your life is not so much about making sure he's number one on your list, but making Jesus the list. And as he is preeminent, as he becomes the priority, as he gets first place in every area of our lives, he leads us and enables us to walk through this life in a way that honors God. Sometimes we think, oh, if I put Jesus first in my life, does that mean I don't love my family? No, that's a load of baloney. As you love Jesus and put him first place in your life, he's going to enable you and lead you to love your family. As we put him first, as we make sure, Jesus, you're preeminent, you're first place, he enables us to live a life that brings him honor and glory. Now, what does this look like for our church, specifically our church? Scripture is full of implications and expressions of what it looks like to put Jesus as a priority. But there are three specific ones that I want to look at this morning. And the first one is, a Jesus-first church will always be a word-centered church. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. John said down in verse number 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we observed His glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You cannot separate a love from Jesus from a love for the Word of God. The word of God is how we know and experience Jesus. The Apostle John later said in 1 John verses, or chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. So he's saying all the experience we had from being around Jesus, that life was revealed, and we have seen it, and we testify, and Declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you, get this, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. These verses blow my mind. The Apostle John is telling us that those who read his writings get the same experience. They get the same fellowship as those who saw Jesus and touched Jesus and sat under his teaching. 
Like, do we realize what we hold in our laps? <laughs> a Jesus first church will always be a word-centered church. If this passage is true in 1 John, and it is, the word of God should be central and foundational for every church. This is why we sing the word. This is why we pray the word. This is why we preach the word. This is why we read the word. God's word is what creates faith, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. God's word does God's work, Hebrews 4.12. God's word is what convicts our heart, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. And God's word is what saved us, 1 Peter 1.23. Our eloquence, our innovation, our programs, whether or not I'm wearing a suit or my Kirkland jeans and cowboy boots, are completely irrelevant. What we need is God's word. Because God's word is his supernatural power for accomplishing his supernatural work. A Jesus first church will always be a word centered church. But we also see in scripture that a Jesus first church will always be a spirit dependent church. Look at what Jesus said in John 16, 7. Another verse that blows my mind. Jesus himself says, nevertheless, I'm telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away. Now, he doesn't stop there, but let's stop there. If you had been walking with Jesus for three years, you had seen the miracles he had did. You'd seen the water turn to wine. You see the feeding of the thousands. You have seen him raise Lazarus from the dead. You've seen healing after healing after healing. And all of a sudden, Jesus says, it's better for you if I go. You might be like, mm, but is it? <laughs> I mean, if you have a dog and it dies, Jesus can raise your dog back to life. If you have a cat and it dies, Jesus can help you bury it. I mean, I don't like cats, sorry. <laughs> but Jesus goes on to explain why. Why is it better that Jesus leaves? Because if I don't go away, the counselor, the Holy Spirit, the parakletos will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus is saying it's necessary, it's beneficial for you that I go back up into heaven so that the Holy Spirit can come to you. Now, as a church, we've been reminded these past few months of our need for the Holy Spirit, haven't we? Our need, and I've said this multiple times, our need these last few months is not greater than it's ever been. But we have been greatly reminded of that need. And so as we as a church move forward, we have to keep this utter dependence on the Holy Spirit. And I believe we have moved forward with, as we have moved forward with that renewed sense of Holy Spirit, I need you, that can be seen in our unity. But as time goes on, we cannot allow simpler circumstances to cause us to lose that sense of urgency and lose that sense of how much we need the Spirit that we have right now. I mean, today is a day about seeking the leading of the Spirit. And so as we seek to put Jesus first, we must do so with a recognition of our dependence on the Holy Spirit. Our prayer today is that the counselor would give us counsel. And so we pray. But as we move forward as a church, how do we know we're walking with the Spirit? Scripture tells us. Turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. I want to read verses 16 through 26. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 26. Paul tells us this is what it looks like to walk with the Spirit. Verse 16, Galatians 5. I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. And then he doesn't leave it vague, he defines those. For the flesh desires what is against the spirit, and the spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other 
so that you don't do what you want. Paul's saying what you really want, the new you, the new creation that God has made, you want the works of the Spirit. You want the fruit of the Spirit, but your flesh comes along, and now there's this conflict so that you don't do what you want. He goes on and says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery. This is where it starts to hit a little more close to home for some of us. Hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions. Somebody needs to read this to Congress. Envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. He just throws that catch-all on at the end there. Those are the works of the flesh, Paul says. And he goes on in Galatians 5 to say, I'm warning you about these things. Paul's like, I love you too much to not give you this strong warning. He even doubles down and says, as I've warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, it's joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In Christ, your flesh is crucified. If we live by the Spirit, let us also then keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, or envying one another. The Bible also in Ephesians chapter number 4, Paul gives us another indicator. Or excuse me, yeah, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. The Bible says, therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the what? The spirit through the bond of peace. And so what Paul is doing here, what the scriptures are doing is they are giving us signs, if you will, of spirit-filled living. And he's also giving us signs of flesh-driven living. These signs are a byproduct of walking with the Spirit or walking in the flesh. And so as we move forward, we want to have this dependence on the Spirit and what that's going to look like is these passages that we just read. So as we recognize our dependence on the Spirit and place our faith in Him, this fruit grows in our life. Unity will be something that is maintained because that is what the Spirit does in our hearts. The fruit of the Spirit will continue to grow and rise up. And when there's those outbursts of anger or those dissensions or that envying, we need to very quickly recognize what that is. That's a work of the flesh. And that means we need to go surrender to the Spirit. Paul also gives a tremendous picture and example to follow for those Christians who have been put in positions of leadership. Again, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter number 2. I'm going to read verses 3 through 12. This is a passage of scripture that I regularly pray, pray about. Lord, make this real in my life. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 3. For exhortation did not come from error or impurity or an intent to deceive. Paul's like, we're not preaching to you with bad motives. We're preaching to you with this desire for the truth. Instead, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please people, but rather God who examines the hearts. He's like, we're not out here trying to please you. We're out here trying to please God. And we don't have selfish ambitions. There's no error. There's no impurity. He goes on and says, for we never used flattering speech, as you know, or had greedy motives. God's our witness. 
That we didn't seek glory from people, either from you or from others. Although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, instead we were gentle among you as a nurse nurtures her own children. We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. Because you had become dear to us. For you remember our labor and hardship, brothers and sisters, working night and day so that we would not burden any of you as we preached God's gospel to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how devotedly, righteously, and blamelessly we conducted ourselves with you believers. As you know, like a father is with his own children, we encouraged, comforted, and implored each one of you to live worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. When the Spirit of God is working through a Christian leader, there's this pure and gentle shepherding that desires to please God, that has no artillery motives, that isn't in it for how it makes him look. There's humble, truth-speaking. Like, we're imploring you to live worthy of God, but it's done gently, truthfully, but gently. There's exhorting, encouraging to live for God and not for self. These passages show us what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit, and they serve as guideposts and signs so that we can gauge our own spirit dependence. God gave us these lists, if you will, so that we can know, man, I'm not walking with the Spirit. That's a work of the flesh, and I need to confess that. And I need to renew my spirit of, Holy Spirit, I need you. The only way we could put Jesus first in our lives and live out these in all the passages of Scripture is to live in utter dependence on the Holy Spirit who enables us, who is our helper, our counselor, our comforter. It's not like you have to bribe the Holy Spirit to help you live right. That's what he does. That's why Jesus sent him to be our helper. A Jesus First Church will always be a word-centered church. A Jesus First Church will be a spirit-dependent church. And lastly, a Jesus First Church will always be a Great Commission-focused church. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, we're all super familiar with this passage. Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Doesn't that just motivate you to go tell somebody? <laughs> Jesus has all the authority. I don't have to fear what you say to me, bub. <laughs> Go, therefore, because Jesus has all the authority, because Jesus has all the power in heaven and on earth, he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. This includes our evangelism. This includes our discipleship. This includes our missions work. When a person is putting Jesus first in their lives, they will take personal responsibility for sharing the gospel with those people God brings into their sphere of influence. When a church puts Jesus first, there will be a passion for other people to come to know Christ, but it's not just evangelism. This also includes discipleship and missions. So yes, there will be a passion to see people place their faith in Jesus, to confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart God raised him from the dead, but then also to disciple them and to teach them everything that Jesus has taught us. And then we will do this to the ends of the earth through our missions work. Now, it's not our responsibility to save anyone. That's what Jesus does. It's not our responsibility to grow the church. That's what Jesus does. It's not our responsibility to run around and make sure everybody's being perfect disciples. That's what the Holy Spirit does. But it is our responsibility to share Jesus. And again, this isn't drudgery. 
This isn't like, oh, I know I got to do this, but I really don't want to. When Jesus is preeminent in our lives, we can't help but tell other people about him. Sure, there will be moments when you have to reckon yourself dead to sin and you have to crucify your flesh because your flesh will say, I'm too scared. I get that. I'm as introverted as I'll get out. Like my knees are knocking even being up here. Sure, there'll be moments you have to crucify our fleshly desires. Yes, we need to be wise and follow the leading of the Spirit and ask the Spirit, Holy Spirit, where are you working? Because I want to go and be a co-laborer with you there. But a genuine love for Jesus always spills over into some type of fulfilling the Great Commission. When you love something, you talk about it. A local church that puts Jesus first will always be marked by these things, word-centered, spirit-dependent, and Great Commission-focused. So, as we prepare to seek the leading of the Holy Spirit, and as we as a church move forward in God's will, let's remember, Jesus is our head. Jesus is our ruler. And Jesus is our priority. He's the chief shepherd. And as we seek the Spirit's leading and move forward today, our desire should be that Jesus would reign supreme here at Fresno Church. I'm going to pray, then Hunter's going to come up and lead us in a time of corporate prayer as we seek his leading. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are the chief shepherd, that you are our head, you are our ruler.